You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Spencer Gates, it's good to see you. Good to be here, Dan. Um, welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience and the larger meaningoflife.tv, bloggingheads.tv audience. Uh, this is the Sophia program available both on streaming video and audio podcast. Uh, I'm uh, Daniel Kaufman, professor of philosophy at Missouri State, and uh, I'm once more joined again by Spencer Case. You want to say just a few things, uh, remind everyone who you are, and say whatever you want to say about the situation that uh, currently you're in yes. or not? <laughs> um, I'm a philosophy postdoc at Wuhan University in Wuhan, China. I got my PhD from the University of Colorado in 2018. Um, that should be enough about me. The Wuhan situation, I'm sure everybody's reading about that. Um, city is quarantined because of uh, this uh, new virus, the Wuhan coronavirus. So I haven't been leaving my apartment really um, for about a week now. I'm beginning to lose count of the days. They shut down all internal transportation. Um, I can look out my window, and now there I can see a few people walking around, walking their dogs, because um, the weather's gotten a bit better, and people are tired of being cooped up inside. But um, there are not very many people outside, and when you see them, they've got these masks on. I think I've got one over here, actually. These uh, blue surgical masks. Um, so they've evacuated the consulate. There's a U.S. consulate in Wuhan, and they've evacuated that. Um, but there's still several hundred Americans living in Wuhan, and I'm sure there are more in Hubei province generally. Um, Wuhan's a city of 11 million people. I'm told there are only 9 million people in it now because uh, a couple million fled when they announced they were going to block off the city. I don't know why you would give advance warning for something like that. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, because then it just makes your quarantine useless, right? So many people leave that you, you know, you sort of... um, How do you, do you see, I mean... What sort of communications do you receive? I mean, uh, is is the Chinese government sort of in in regular contact with the populations that are letting them know what's being done and what to expect in the coming days or weeks, or is it just like some post apocalyptic movie where like you have no idea what the hell's going on? And, and I'll tell you, the scariest the scariest day was like the the first full day I didn't leave my apartment and seeing all of the crazy stuff that was going around Twitter. You know, videos of people in hospitals just falling over on their face, um, allegedly from this disease. But who knows? Who knows what these videos are? Exactly. And, and, and it's just like the what the hell is going on factor. Um, the uncertainty is a – the uncertainty really freaked me out. Now it's, it's beginning to get more stable, I guess. Um, I was able to go shopping on Sunday – with uh, Tim Perrine, my colleague who lives seven floors up from me in the same building. I'm able to see him because uh, we're in the same building together. But we went and we got shopping. I've got enough groceries to last me a month, and that ha- puts my mind at ease a little bit. Um, I am in contact with the U.S. Department of State. I'm on their mailing list. So if there's another plane, I'll hear about it. I'm a little bit ambivalent about about leaving though, because you have to pay your own way. Even if they offer you a plane, you have to pay your own way, which I don't think is some big injustice, but it yeah. still yeah. sucks. And then I can expect some kind of quarantine on the other end. 
And I think like, well, if I'm going to be quarantined, I'd rather be in my own apartment. Sure. And, uh, and so that sucks. And, uh, my family wants me to get out of here until the situation calms down. I can't say I blame them. So we'll see what happens. I might not, uh, I might be departing Wuhan for a while, but we'll see what so you just happening. you just don't know. You just don't know right now, basically. No. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, I guess you know, doing things like these dialogues is just a good distraction. I mean, what else are you going to do? Sit there and worry all day? I mean, you know, you may as well, I guess, uh, carry on um, as best as you can and um, distract yourself. I know. Every time I'm in New York, dealing with some horrible turn in my father's poor health I almost I want to do my work you know it's just sort of like so I'm just not thinking about uh, and obsessing about uh, the things I'm worried about um, so Spencer um, wanted to talk about moral realism and um, put together a really very nice outline of topics it is a subject on which he and I pretty much diametrically disagree upon and um I should say, Spencer, that the audience really liked our discussion, the last discussion, the first one we did. They liked the way we interacted. They liked the fact that we disagreed on quite a bit, and they liked the fact that we kind of were like thinking in real time, that it was not a very, very staged right. or prepared sort of thing. And so um, I'm really glad that you, uh, you you seem to be up to do more of these, and I'm really uh, appreciative of the, I should uh, say. Yeah. I should say. Uh, my girlfriend, who is also in Wuhan and is quarantined on the other side of the city. Oh, God. Not, yeah, exactly. I, I was talking to her um, using a Chinese social media app, and I said, I said, yeah, I'm going on a podcast with another philosopher, and we really disagree. And she's like, she says, does that happen a lot in philosophy? Like, Never. <laughs> Sweet summer child. <laughs> So yeah. why don't you um why don't you start off? Um I will ask you though to however you start off, say just a few words about what you take moral realism to be. <laughs> um um and then uh you know we can launch into uh, you can start into however you want to uh start into the topic. Right. I think there's quite a lot to unpack uh just with the definition here. In fact, um, the one thing I want to begin with is the realism, anti-realism, that's a, that's a dichotomy, but we're talking about a range of views, like a range of possibilities. Um, my dissertation advisor, Graham Audie, in his book, I think it's called Value, Desire, Reality, or Value, Reality, Desire. I can never remember which sequence of those nouns it is. But he, he begins by giving like six, six levels of realism about value. And I think that's kind of the right way to think of it, is to think of it like sort of steps of, of increments to, of, of realism rather than draw, drawing some line in the sand where you're an anti-realist if you're over here and you're a realist if you're over here. Well, maybe you could give a sketch of that because I, it's not at all obvious to me how that would go given how I think of realism. So why don't you uh, go ahead and sketch that? All right. Uh, so uh, I recall Audi has at his lowest level, um, just, I think he, I'm, I'm not sure, maybe he calls it semantic realism, but this is basically cognitivism, right? So are moral statements meaningful, right? If I say the transatlantic slave trade was morally evil, is that a meaningful statement, right? And 
As opposed Something to what, a sort of an emotivist treatment? Something like that, yes. Okay, so yes. as opposed to, let's say, sort of a, a boo-hurrah theory, like you get an air. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Go um, ahead. So you say yes, to, if you say no to that, that's the, that uh, moral statements aren't even meaningful, then, that's, uh, then you're a non-cognitivist. So if you say yes, up to the next level, and then you say, okay, um, moral statements are meaningful that me, um, in the sense of being truth apt, in the sense of they can be true or false, are some of, the, are some of them non-trivially true, right? Are some of them true? So an error theorist now would say, yes, moral statements are meaningful, but no, none of them are, uh, none of them are true. Now, there, there, are some, there are some technical difficulties for this position that I think they, they have their ways of working out, like, um, do you have to say that um, if you define evil as not good or something, then you deny that, every, that something is not good, you assert that it's evil, or, but there are ways of sorting, sorting that out. So in a non-trivial sense, are there some true moral statements? So an error theorist says no. Um, if you clear that bar, if you say, yes, moral statements are meaningful, yes, um, some of them are true, non-trivially true, then you get to the third level. Or, um, well, at, at that point, I would say, this is, this is what Massimo was calling objectivism. I would call it minimal realism. I think this is what Je- Jeffrey Sear McCord says. So min- a minimal realist says that there are, there are some moral truths, right? But when you say that you're a moral realist, you want to typically say more than that. But I actually think that the further criteria after this get extremely contentious and tricky when you dig into the details. Um, so, for example, uh, the, 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 third, the third thing that you're supposed to meet to be a realist is um, you're supposed to say that some moral truths are mind-independent. Um, but it, I think it is quite tricky to spell out what is meant by mind-independent in a way that's going to be acceptable. So, for example, one theory of value is hedonism. So according to hedonism, good, what's good is pleasure or happiness or states of the mind, right? And, and, um, or the, bel- the balance of pleasure over pain or something like that, depending on how you want to cash it out. Well, that's certainly mind-dependent. Um, well, but it seems like... Well, wait a minute. The pleasure is... The pleasure is. But the goodness that is asserted to be the characteristic, a characteristic of the pleasure need is not would not be then, right? I mean in other words, I don't see I don't see why the fact that the pleasure is not mind independent doesn't mean that the goodness of it wouldn't be mind independent. Um is the goodness of it something independent of, of, of it itself? Like if we're just identifying the pleasure the goodness with pleasure, it's weird to say the, the, the one is mind-dependent, but the other isn't. Well, look, I'm not a moral realist. I mean, I don't really yeah. have a skin in this, but I mean, right. I guess I just didn't think, and maybe I'm wrong about this, um, I guess I didn't think that moral realists had a particular problem with respect to the fact that neither a Kantian view, that both Kantian views and utilitarian views are very heavily, you know, involve a lot of uh, connection to mental 
uh, mental states, right? So that's exactly um, my um, point. But but I don't see why that why why that is a problem for someone who wants to say that rightness and wrongness are mind independent properties. In, in other words, in other words, I don't see because look, what you could say if you're a utilitarian is, um, uh, yeah, pleasure is good, um, but all that saying it's good means is that it that a lot of people care about it, right? Now that would be a non-realist treatment of its goodness, right? Um, 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 uh, in the way that I understand realism. Um, but if, 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 if a realist would say, well, no, I mean, yes, the, 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 the pleasure is, is uh, mind dependent, but, uh, it's goodness is mind independent, right? Um, that, that, that pleasure is good is a kind of like a, is like a platonic truth, right? Um, that's one way you could go. That's one way you could go. That's what I was, what I always thought a realist was, was somebody, and in that sense, it's supposed to be analogous to other forms of realism, like metaphysical realism. And, and that's why I thought it was useful for when Massimo and I discussed this to sort of distinguish between moral objectivism. So, you know, a, con- a contractarian could say that, that, that values and obligations are objective in the sense that they're not just some, anybody's opinion, right? Um, but um, they're not real in the realist sense because they don't exist independently of anybody's practices, right? They don't in- exist independently. So I, I guess I don't see why a realist should have any problem with the fact that that pleasure is not mind independent. Well, I don't think they should. I'm just saying that I think this may be a problem with the mind independence criterion as, as far as it needs to be spelled out more. Now, what you said about the goodness might be independent of the mind, but the pleasure isn't, that's one way a realist could go, and that's towards a, a kind of non-naturalism, which I actually favor, but yeah. I don't think you want to find realism in such a way that uh, being a realist entails being a non-naturalist. Well, it would seem to me that it would in morals, right? I mean, it wouldn't, obviously, with respect to uh, material, the material world, right? I mean, um, um, uh, but um, surely values belong to the manifest and not the scientific image, right? I mean, um, um, if there were no people, if there were no agents, if there were no actors in existence, then it's not as if the rocks and the and the space dust and the stars and all of that would would have value, right? I mean, I mean those those characteristics are are the result of certain kinds of, you know, certain kinds of beings being there and certain kinds of relations being there, right? I mean, you're not suggesting that a, a universe in which there are never evolved any actors would have moral characteristics, do you? There'd be nothing morally significant. There would only be um, modal statements like, if there were beings in this universe, then you should... Uh, right, but that's, that's not interesting, though, right? I mean, that's not yeah. philosophically interesting. Uh, I don't know. I mean, so... So let's back up about what this sure, third criterion Sure, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm just, yeah, go but, ahead. Um, let's back up about what this third criterion is supposed to do. What the moral realist wants to, wants to eliminate or, or rule out views that make moral truth, basic moral truths, dependent on opinion or social construction. So I, my, my opinion is it's best to just say that and 
and leave it at that, right? Rather than rather than trying to spell out a positive sense of mind independence, which I, I think it gets you into, I mean, maybe it, it can be done, but I haven't quite seen anything that's, that's satisfied me here. So if, if you want to say, um, for example, consider moral relativism. Now, this is clearly a view that realists are going to reject. The view that, yes, there are moral truths, so we're minimal realists, right? Uh, we, we meet the first two conditions. Uh, moral statements are meaningful. Some of them are true. But their truth is dependent on culture, right? Like, what what is good according to my culture is what's good morally. Um, a realist is going to reject that. I'm going to reject that. Um, but there's a sense in which you could you could say that there is a mind-independent norm by that theory that if your culture says X, then X is good, right? Um, so why doesn't that satisfy mind-independence? Um, you see what I mean? Yeah, I guess... You know, maybe ultimately this doesn't really matter. It's just sort of slicing things up in different ways that wind up being sort of extensionally equivalent. But I guess um, I kind of want to be able to distinguish between the moral, the non-moral realist, moral objectivist, right, um, and the full-blown pl- platonic sort of moral realist, right? I mean, I, I. I <clears throat> I guess I think there's, there's, that that's a useful distinction to make, um, and, um, and partly because, well, I'm not, let me not go down that road. Um, I, I think that's a, that that's a useful distinction to be able to make. Um, it sounds to me like you're just sort of happy to go as far as moral objectivist and then not go for much beyond that. Um, the thing is, is that. Um, at least in terms of potential disagreements between us, a lot of my potential disagreements are not going to be at the objectivism. They're going to be at the, at the realism. Um, and so it may mean that we disagree about a lot less. Uh, no, no, I, I do want to go beyond, I do want to go beyond minimal realism slash objectivism. Um, but I just want to point out <clears throat> just saying like mind independence is the third thing. I think that opens up a, like a whole set of, of problems that are usually not, not picked apart too finely. They tend to be sort of glossed over because I think yeah. a lot of these like paradigm, like if you define um, mind independence too strictly, you rule out like hedonism, which seems like it should be compatible with moral realism. But if you define it to, if you define it a little bit more broadly, suddenly it seems like all for, all sorts of forms of subjectivism now get to be counted as realism. So I, I think, I think there's a puzzle there and how to do that exactly correctly. Um, yeah, so go ahead. Yeah, so I'm just going to say something a little bit less committal, and I'm going to say, and I'm going to sort of contrast moral facts with, say, facts about currency. I think this is a good contrast. So it is a, it is a truth that the U.S. dollar is currency, and it's currency accepted in the U.S. That's true. So that meets the first two um, conditions of realism, right? It's meaningful to say it, and it's true. And it's empirically true. You just notice that, you know, you go to a store and you give them dollars and they'll give you goods. Right. Um, but you, this is dependent on human convention, right, in, in a pretty obvious way. Um, it is. Because yes. you crash, 
China could buy the U.S. and now we're all using yuan or something, or something, or the the, the uh, tre- Treasury and the um, Federal Reserve could declare we're going to do something else now. We're all going to Bitcoin, and then it wouldn't be true anymore. Um, and so I think what the what the realist is really after is moral facts are not contingent upon those sorts of decisions, right? Um, there's no moral board anywhere who can make a vote and say, okay, we're going to make slavery le- uh, a morally right next week, um, but only for one week or something like that. Yeah. Just, so that's really what the, what the moral realist is after, I think. Yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm wondering, though, if that's going to work. I mean, I... I mean, whether that's a viable way of characterizing it, not whether it whether it's correct, but but sort of because I can think of any number, I, I can think of several, certainly moral objectivists, but in one case, a flat-out moral realist who does think that obligations and duties are contingent upon circumstances, right? And so... Um, Aristotle is certainly a moral objectivist, although not a moral realist. And although you could maybe argue he's a moral realist because of his, his teleological view of human nature, but let's just not get into all that for now. He's certainly a moral objectivist, but Aristotle famously doesn't think that any action is intrinsically right or wrong. It's entirely dependent on the circumstances and whether relative to the circumstances it constitutes moderation, right? Um, and that will, that will, that will change. The very same action may be, uh, may be, uh, suffer, maybe a vice of deficiency on Tuesday, um, a moderate on Wednesday and a vice of excess on Thursday, depending on what else is going on. So that's sort of one thing that I would sort of be concerned about. And then someone like W.D. Ross, who is a moral realist, very famously thinks that we, we have any number of prima facie duties, but what our actual duty is in any given set of uh, circumstances depends entirely on which prima facie duty is more pressing in those circumstances, right? And so I just don't see why a moral objectivist or a moral realist needs to reject the idea that uh, obligation, duty, etc., may be dependent upon or contingent upon people, circumstances, and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So I think there's a confusion that's introduced into this whole discussion with, with the word absolute and absolutism, which is ambiguous. So absolute can mean um, not, depend, uh, not dependent on, on anything else or something like that, or it can mean uncompromising, unyielding. Um, I don't see any reason why there couldn't be like a moral reality in a strong, even platonic sense, but a moral reality that's sensitive to circumstances and uh, allows lots of different considerations to be taken into effect. Like, I don't think that if there's a moral moral reality and and there is a moral reason not to lie, that means that you can't lie no matter what the circumstances are. So I thought you just said that you just defined it in terms of not being contingent upon human decisions. You were comparing it to the case of the money, right? Well, the money is the money is 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 a is a standard of currency, you know, relative to these sets of agreements, but if those change and at least both Aristotle and Ross 
you could tell a very similar story about about obligations and duties, right? You know, this is a duty unless these people over there are doing this and, and think that and the circumstances are such that this is happening down the street and da-da-da-da-da. I don't see the relevant difference um, between that the relevant, and the money case. The relevant difference is you don't have the, the Federal Reserve saying, okay, we're going to set the weights for the prima facie duties differently today or something like that. Right, yeah, but that, like, that that that's a non-essential difference, right? I mean, I mean, I thought that that's I didn't think the point hung on the Federal Reserve. I thought that the point hung upon the fact that the idea of this being contingent upon agreements, upon about social agreements and human decisions, and all of that would be the case in both Aristotle with both Aristotle and Ross. They're both moral objectivists, and one of them is also a moral realist in the stronger sense. I'm not necessarily think, arguing with you. I'm just because I'm not thinking that 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 you've quite got the right characterization. I mean, I agree with you that mind independence is a whole is a whole clusterfuck of problems, um, but I'm not sure that non contingent upon human decisions or whatever is going to work. I'm I'm wondering whether you have to sort of play with this a yeah, little. No, I, I I see I see the point. I see the point. I, I think it, it's got to be something like the most basic. The, the most basic kind of normative moral entities, those are not contingent. But like, um, so for example, if utilitarianism is true, if utilitarianism is true, the principle of utility, let's just say it's maximizing utilitarianism because it's the principle that you should maximize utility um, whenever you can, however you can, that is not going to be dependent on any kind of human decision. But then things that humans do are going to determine what will actually maximize utility, right? So there, at that level, there is going to be a kind of dependence on what humans do, what humans say. Okay, I'm what, not going to die on this hill. I mean, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to peck you to death. Um, I just sort of um, thought to myself, well, wait a minute, I could, you know, I, I want to make sure that that we're not missing something obvious. Um, but At some it's point, fine. I want to sit down and do a paper on just what is the mind independence criterion supposed to be for moral realism. I kind of um, spelled out a bit of these problems at the beginning of my dissertation and l- largely punted on, on it because it's not being discussed widely as, as, as being a problem. It's sort of like, oh, we all sort of know well enough what mind independence is supposed to be. But it does seem to me that you dig down into the details and it gets – it gets pretty thorny pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, I have a problem with mind independence even in the, on the side of metaphysics. I mean, I, I, I'm, I find many of the metaphysical anti-realist arguments quite persuasive. Um, and, um, um, and despite the fact, in addition, that I'm not, I'm not, an, I'm not a, metaf- a metaphysical monist, so, you know, I'm a metaphysical pluralist, so um, they're further pumped. And that's actually going to come into play, I think, with what we're going to wind up talking about eventually, and that is that, um, you know, one of, one, of my, one of my reasons for not being a moral realist isn't the queerness argument <laughs> um, 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 uh, that, that, that you get in Mackey, which we'll, we'll get to down the road. But, um, and that's because, you know, I don't think there's anything queer about something that's not a natural or physical property since I, I'm a metaphysical pluralist. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, why don't you continue on from where, from where we are? So let's just bracket this question about the precise formulation of, um, 
contingent upon human whatever and, and just sort of you, you don't want to go mine independence because you think it's a nest of vipers you'd rather do something along the lines of non-contingent or necessary or or something like that um um in some way or the other i guess we'll just put it that way right um um so anyway so go on uh, yeah so once the you've got the, the mind independence or whatever it is, what that criterion spelled out. At that point, you get into what I would think of as ecumenical disagreements within realism, right? And I, I don't have a whole lot to say about those. Um, so, for example, are you a naturalist or not is the big division. Um, I tend to, and, and what is naturalism? Now, we could go, we could go there. Um, but naturalism means one. Um, I, th- I think the, the most general thing it's supposed to mean is that moral, the, the truth makers of, the, of moral facts, the things that make moral statements true, are not metaphysically different from the kinds of truths discoverable by the natural sciences. I think that's basically it. Um, but again, if you probe on like, well, what is a natural property exactly? You get into a whole other thicket of, of, of questions, no less complicated than the ones we were just discussing. Well, let me ask you something about that. Um, sure. This is, this is tricky stuff. So, I mean, it almost starts to me to sound like you'd have to be, you're sort of going to be forced to saying that moral realism is an empirically demonstrative demonstrable position, right? Whereas, you know, the standard realisms, right? No one is going to say metaphysical realism is an empirically verifiable position, right? Um, um, But if you're not going to say that one can be an entirely naturalistic moral realist, or by naturalistic, I'm assuming you mean some sort of a materialism or physicalism, that is an ontological, a metaphysical monism, right? Then isn't that going to wind up making moral realism an empirical theory? The naturalist makes the moral realism an empirical theory? Yeah, if one allows for a completely naturalistic or slash materialistic moral realism, then aren't you in the weird position of having to say that moral realism, which I thought was a metaphysical thesis is actually an empirical one. You know, that's interesting. Um, There are these arguments. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Nicholas Sturgeon's work. Sure. um, Yeah. 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 Um, And then Michael Humer, who is on my, uh, my committee has got a similar argument. I actually don't find these sorts of arguments persuasive, but there's a one kind of argument says the best explanation for certain kinds of social progress is that we've been, we're in touch with some kind of moral reality. Um, whereas I'm, I'm inclined to think, given that I am a realist on other grounds, that's how I'm going to interpret social progress, like abolitionism. I think reason had some role to do with people's recognition that slavery was immoral, um, other things like that. But I don't think you can start from a position of not being a moral realist and then look at those developments and then find a persuasive argument for moral realism there. But the thing is, you think that if you're suggesting that rightness and wrongness 
and obligatoriness and prohibitedness can be natural properties, then it seems to me that any statements about them are going to be, I mean, in other words, I don't see, it seems to me that nothing, if, if anything is a priori, it's something like moral realism, right? But now I'm wondering if it is. Um, and then I'm also wondering how you're going to run an account of realism that has it being non-contingent, right? Yeah. Um, so I don't maybe know. This what, is too abstract and tricky, but I mean, that's, these are the things that are occurring to me as you're sort of right. talking through this. I think a naturalist would want to say something like, and it depends on what kind of naturalist, you know, we're talking about, et cetera. I think a naturalist would have to concede that in principle, they're empirically invest, uh, empirically can be investigated through the sciences, but in practice, doing that would be would be extremely complicated to be like to be able to like look at a set of physical facts and infer some moral fact would be just beyond our technological capabilities though it is in principle possible i think a, that a moral does, naturalist might does that seem right to you though no, I mean, you're not you're not a nat now you're not a moral no. naturalist right no I'm not. okay so I'm there's not. no reason to fight this one out yeah. um i'm actually my reaction to you is more that i'm actually i'm somewhat surprised that there is such a position uh-huh. In other words, because it seems to me it would entail all sorts of things that are just clearly either wrong or just a mess, right? I mean, um, 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 I don't. I, you'd have to countenance, for example, natural properties that are not in some way empirically verifiable, right? But I don't know. I, I would say that it would. I would argue that built part, you know, that something like natural property is a thick concept that includes things like empirically verifiable, right? That's part of what makes it natural as opposed to a non-natural fact, like, you know, the Pythagorean theorem or, or, now, uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I'm not a naturalist. And I know so you're not. I'm yeah. Not the ideal person to be defending the naturalist yeah. here. Yeah. Um, but I want to make sure we're not giving the naturalist short shrift. And so I want to, put this forward on behalf of the naturalist, like consider like the badness of pain. Is that empirically ba verifiable? Well, maybe it is, right? I don't see how it would be unless you, really? unless you define the badness in terms of human, what matters to people, right? If you're going to, well, yeah, but, but I, then I, if that's I, not realism anymore, that's subjectivism. Well, I'm suggesting that that, that kind of value realism might not might not be a pro, uh, a problem, or that kind of dependency might not be a problem for the realist, or at least. So now you can be a moral subjectivist and a moral realist at the same time. I don't think it's subjectivism to say that pain is bad. Right? To say that badness only exists relative to people for whom pain matters—that strikes me as being non-realist. I don't. I mean. I mean, I've never heard anyone describe someone like an emotivist or like a Humean sentimentalist as being a moral realist. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that. No, that's right. That's right. But um, a hedonistic utilitarian, I think, could be a realist. Although you might say, you might say, well, the issue there is not the, the value, but the obligation claim that you ought to maximize um, the value or something like that. But it does seem like, like, just stick with the value claim for a minute. Sure, sure. I, you, you can tell me whatever you don't want to litigate. Just tell me, and I'll I'll drop it. You know what I mean? That's fine. <laughs> it does seem to me that it, it makes sense to say, like, yeah, I've experienced putting my hand on the stove once, and it was pain, and it was bad. 
that seems like you can you can verify the badness of pain through each experience of it. Um, and <sighs> pain, the, 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 that pain is bad. Like an, in, an instance of pain is, of course... But to the extent that the badness implies some sort of ought, that is the normativity of it, I don't see yeah. how that could come from a purely natural yeah. account. Yeah, so... This this gets to other questions about the relationship between value and and normativity, which is which is uh, is quite fraught. So it seems like there's some kind of some kind of relation there. It seems like if I recognize that something is bad, it, I ought to be able to deduce from that that I've got some kind of reason to avoid it or not promote it or something. It seems to me that normativity is the whole game. Without normativity, the whole discourse is pointless. It seems to me. Um, um, and that's why I'm more inclined. I'm very inclined to think that, you know, if you can't make sense of the normativity, then you're just going to, and look, this is Anscombe's view. Right. Um, um, and, um, I, I feel like modern ethicists should, should have to read and recite Anscombe's modern moral philosophy every morning. Um, um, as a part of, uh, to remind themselves, uh, the, the hills that they've, that they have, haven't climbed yet. Um, um, and that they can't just help themselves to all sorts of assumptions. Um, you know, I, I read it, I read it a, a couple of times, although it's been years. And I found it like extremely polemical and rhetorical, and I, I think it's completely popular. devastating. I don't think any modern moral, any modern moral philosophy survives it. Um, I think it's one of a handful of the most devastating critiques of an I, entire school and of an entire framework. Um, I see. That I've ever I see read. nothing impressive about it. I found nothing impressive about it. Mm. I will say that that that. Um, the weight of history seems to be on your side. Uh, however, um, I would very strongly suggest that it's simply because nobody's good enough to actually answer the challenges. And they just figure that if they ignore it long enough, people will forget about it and they can, can, can carry on. But it's the, one of the reasons why I take almost no modern moral theorizing very seriously, because I just don't think the fundamental questions and challenges she asked and challenges she posed have been in any way adequately answered. Um, and that has to do precisely with, with the matter of normativity, um, uh, as well as having to do with the idea of human nature. Um, and, um, um, and so, um, you know, uh, a lot of the arguments I'm going to pose are going to be, you know, straightforwardly Anscomian arguments. Um, uh, that, that, that essay that I had you to re- read about, uh, uh, about prescription and force. Um, that's all inspired by Anscombe. Um, um, I just don't think any of the imperatives that anybody from any of the moral philosophies utters has any normative force whatsoever. It has well, what, it has what, it has what Anscombe calls mesmeric force. It has force only as kind of like a fiction. Um, but the minute you push on it, the whole thing dissolves and you just realize that all you're doing is listening to other people tell you what they want. Right. Um, um, and yeah, uh, I, I find myself in very strong disagreement, but perhaps sure you do. But, you know, until you until you can actually show me the force. OK, it's just talk. But it's just maybe, talk, man. Maybe we can agree on this one point, then, which sure. is I think there, there's how to define moral realism. But we haven't yet said much about why this debate matters, why it's. Important. Sure. Go ahead. Tell me what go tell why you think it matters. I think that. What we're really responding to isn't the, the desire to have some kind of metaphysical fact or something like that. 
undergirding our moral statements. But the whole idea of normative, normative force, normative authority, normativity, like we really ought to do the things we morally ought to do, there's a sense among many realists, myself included, that you can't really capture that, that. You can't really make sense of the importance of our normative discourse, normative practices, our commitments to ethics uh, without, with, without making the, the most fundamental ethic, ethical truths not dependent on individual desire or, or, or social construction in some way. So I, I, really think, I really think authority, the, the authority of morality, really is what, what this whole debate is about. Right. Um, and there are some people who seem to think that, who, who, who treat moral realism and, and meta-ethics as being this, this higher-order question. Like, you've got all of our first-order normative practices, so um, the common-sense morality you and I would agree with and adhere to uh, mostly in everyday life, like don't lie, don't steal, don't kill, and, you know, can say like, wow, that's terrible when you hear about a serial killer or, or something like that. So th- there's the first order ordinary discourse, um, which I, I, think, I think you agree with me that you're not like wanting to abandon or give up. And then there's this thought that, then there's this higher level um, dollop of metaphysical weirdness on top that is dispensable, and why would we bother with that? I think I don't know. I don't know if I. I don't know if I would accept the first part. I mean, I, I kind of do okay. want to give it up. Um, okay. Actually, the, the essay "Prescription Reason and Force." One of the things I said is I, I really wouldn't mind at all if people just stopped using the word "should," you know, for, for a lot. A lot. <laughs> um, because I just I find nothing compelling about it. Um, um, you know, when when people tell me all these things I should do, I always you know, ask why, and then I find myself chasing the kind of down a rabbit hole of answers, none of which is any more persuasive than the previous one. Um, um, and so, um, and, I, and it's actually worth noting that, you know, there's not just normativity within the moral frame of reference. Normativity is th- shot through, normative notions are thought shot throughout philosophy. You know, justification is a normative no- notion, right? Justification is, uh, if something is justified, then you ought to believe it, right? Um, truth is a normative, uh, uh notion. Um, 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 and so I, I find, I, 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 what I, what I'm increasingly aware of is that we're sort of swimming in a sea of shoulds. And I've yet to ever hear a compelling case made for what the force of those shoulds is supposed to be. Um, yeah. So I, other than that, somebody wants something from me or wants me to do something or which, well, I might, you know, I might be sympathetic a, to or not, but I, I find that the, what you just described that, that authority, I just find um, to me is a kind of con game. That's so that, that, the people the people who don't feel like negotiating anymore now try to act as if the thing that they want carries some great force with it, such that it's not this that, that I want you to do it, but in some sense you have to do it, right? Um, I just I just I just um, I find moral talk more often than not an excuse on the part of people who don't want to negotiate anymore, um, um, who don't want to have to compromise, who don't want to have to settle for the fact that they might actually lose the negotiation or that they might lose 
<laughs> whatever it is the disagreement is about. Um, yeah. So if I say, if I like, say, aha, there's this special magic power. It's called normative force of ethics, right? I and you ought to do it. And if you're not, you're a capital bad B bad person. If I just don't care about any of that, it has no force at all, right? I mean, it's just talk. No, it's not just talk. Is it just talk to say, don't be a rapist? Be, being a rapist is bad. You shouldn't be a rapist. Is that just talk? Or does that say something true? About I, think, you- I, think, I think you're now, I think you're engaging a manipulative rhetoric. I don't think so. I do. Because of the example you chose. Because of the example you because of the example you chose. You're playing on you're you're trying to get me to say something that's now gonna make me look terrible because of the kind of example that you chose that's that's highly a highly charged a highly charged sort of reality. We're talking about the kind of reality that makes rape and genocide and enslavement and mass murder wrong. So if you want to say that well, I think they're hor- I think they're horrible, but wrong has a very different connotation. Right, wrong implies by horrible. Do you mean? Do you mean I ought? I really ought not to do them. Meaning, I find them horrible. I mean, no. I mean, I'm, that's I, not I, what I'm. That's not what I'm asking. I ought not to. Do right, them. but, but my, my point is that I have yet to see an account of the alleged force that these judgments have. That's well, what do you persu- want? That's persuasive. What what are you what are you looking for? Are you looking for something that I can say that will like? It seems it seems to me like a lot of humans just want to like collapse normativity with like motivation. Like if I don't want to do right. it, I don't, that's right. I don't that's right. Well, then faces you're, you're, don't change anything, right? I mean, you can make all the faces you want. It's not an answer, right? Um. Well, you haven't given me an objection. You haven't given but, me. But an the objection. burden's not on me. I'm just asking you. What 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 is the force of these propositions? Now look, I understand. I understand what the force is. What what do you mean by force? Do you on mean a divine command? View, the, the the compelling force that what goes you beyond mean, you simply force? caring about it. Normative force. Yes. Okay. What compelling force does it have beyond the fact that somebody cares about it? The fact that it's wrong. That that's just, it. That's just begging. That's just question begging. Well, it's question begging for you not to not to acknowledge that as a possibility. Yeah, I just don't see that. Okay, so let consider this. I mean, I can run through Anscombe's arguments and explain why. In our current frame, in our current frame of reference, why there is no foundation or grounds for the force that these judgments are supposed to have, right? Um, I've read your whole, I've read your whole essay on this a couple of times and you just don't, you don't consider moral realism as a possibility and say, you know, if somebody, if somebody says you ought to do something, that's just the kind of way of forcing them to do something. But like, that's not, that's not normativity. That's not, that's just the rejection of the view. I'm, I hold not a, an argument against it. Right. Like what's, uh, consider this. Yeah, I don't get it. Cons- consider this. Um, yeah, um, you, you're, I'm, you're no doubt familiar with the Ring of Gygus case from Book Two of the Republic. Um, so, this is a case of um, I don't know whether I'm saying it right, Gygus or Gygus or whatever. Um, but so the, the shepherd of Ly- uh, in the service of the king of Lydia finds a ring that makes him invisible 
And, and then the invisibility, what that is supposed to symbolize is the, uh, being able to escape the social sanctions that are associated with immoral behavior. Um, so then the, you know, the, uh, Gai- let's, you know, as Glaucon is presenting this to Socrates in the, in the context of the Republic to, to get, to push Socrates to defend his view that justice is both instrumentally good and good for its own sake. So he, he gives the story of this guy who has this power that makes him exempt from all sorts of moral sanctions. And how does he use it? How does he use it? He, um, you know, he kills the king, sleeps with the queen, makes himself king, and then Glaucon says, um, um, Glaucon uh, says, well, and of course, he would take whatever he wanted, he would have sex with whoever he wanted, and he's clearly referring to rape there, because I don't think he means that, like, every woman is going to be so impressed with his ability to turn invisible. So he, he becomes a rapist and a murderer, and Glaucon says, well, everyone would do this, basically, and why not? You know, there's no penalty associated with it. Um, and then Socrates' actual answer, like, that's such a really, it's such an, an interesting thought experiment, and, and the answer... Um, so it's like, well, in order to understand justice in the individual case and the disorder it causes in the soul, we're going to need to consider justice in the political case. And that makes me think, oh, no, like if we have to solve politics before we answer this question, like we're never going to get to the answer to this question. But I present this thought experiment to my to my students. Um, I don't ask them if um, who, who among you would behave like Gygus, because like I yeah, would in this example, because I don't want to know. Um, but it seems like a lot of people do have the intuition that like, yes, it's really shouldn't do it even though he could get away with it. And I modify, I I add this one further tweak. The further tweak is um, suppose that Gygus, the the ring of Gygus allows Gygus not even to feel guilty for whatever crimes he commits, because that's a sanction too. It's an internal sanction. That's right. And, and the purpose of the ring, the the purpose of the ring in the story is it's not about just avoiding punishment like criminal punishment. It's to avoid all instrumental features of morality. So you just have morality itself, right? So um, Gygus, um, so Gygus um, has the ring. He has the ability to avoid even internal sanctions associated with immoral behavior. Um, and yet I want to say he ought not rape people. And I, I can at least make sense of that assertion. And it's, I think it's also true that one who is um, similarly able to escape the consequences of immoral behavior just shouldn't behave immorally for no other reason than that it is immoral. I think that's completely comprehensible. Um, and I think it's true with regard to certain categories of behavior. Yeah, I just don't find that persuasive at all. I mean, I, first of all, I don't see why someone has to be a moral realist to to not want to do what Guy just does. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to do what Guy just does, but I don't see why that has to make me a moral realist. And um, the wanting to do X because, and, and when I ask, well, why not? Well, because X is immoral. Um, I, I just, I find that um, an empty 
an empty gesture. Um, I don't, that doesn't, that doesn't really mean anything to me. Um, it's certainly not persuasive. It's, it's certainly not the case that if I wasn't already inclined against doing whatever the thing was, that I would suddenly become inclined because you told me that. I certainly wouldn't. Um, um, the reason that I wouldn't behave this way is because behaving that way would make me feel sick, right? I mean, I would, I would, I would feel terrible. I would, I, I would have pity for the people that I was hurting and I would you know, feel, feel terrible that I'd done it. Um, um, I don't see why any of that requires me to be a moral realist. It just requires me to have emotions. Um, and, um, and, uh, if I wasn't so inclined, that's why I find the question really sort of, I find the whole discussion rather uh, pointless and even somewhat silly because the real question is if one was confronted with a person who was not already so inclined, what would it add to tell them that it's, Oh, by the way, it's immoral on top of it. I understand you. I understand you don't care about it. I understand you don't feel that way. I understand you have no sympathy, but you know, it's immoral. I would, if I was that person, I'd just laugh at you, right? I mean, I'd be like, and what's that supposed to mean to me? Yeah, but I mean, do you think, do you think that the task of the moral realist is to convince Jeffrey Dahmer to be a good person? No, I think, I think the task of the moral realist is to explain to me what is added by saying that beyond I really w- wish you wouldn't do that, right? Or I really wish that you would do that. I don't know what's added. And the way to test or, or the way to push that question is to ask, is to imagine saying it to somebody who was or not already so inclined, right? Um, I, that's why I think that the, the moral discourse, for the most part, is simply designed to try to give an air of necessity or objectivity to something in a situation where one is confronted with someone who's not already inclined to do what one wishes, right? And so then one sort of gives, tries, tries to give it the imprimatur of a kind of, of a kind of objective necessity that it doesn't really have. And I, I, I think it would have no efficacy at all uh, on a person who was not already emotionally inclined in that direction. Um, that's why I agree with Anscombe that these op- that these judgments, these statements, really only have mesmeric force. They don't have any real force. And you know, Philippa Foote said something very similar. She said, "Yeah, in, in the 1970 paper, she no longer she abandoned right." I don't, uh, but we're not doing biography. I, I think she was wrong to abandon it. I think that that was right. Um, the fact that she abandoned it is has nothing to do with whether it's correct or not. Um, 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 unless we're just doing history of ideas. I'm not doing history of ideas. I'm trying to figure out what I think is the right position. And um, I agree entirely with Philippa Foote when she said um, that people seem to think that these statements have some sort of internal power or force, but they don't. They, they, the only force they have is either in the inclination to, that the person already feels in the direction that one is exhorting the person towards, or and the belief in some framework in which there's going to be some sanction of some sort, um, which again only works because people care about the sanctions, right? Um, The rest of it just strikes me as just illusory. I mean, it's just not, doesn't move me at all. Um, If I'm not already inclined towards something and somebody says to me, well, you know, you really ought to, that doesn't move me one inch. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. But then it's used and it's pointless. It's just empty talk. It's not empty. It's I, not think empty. The, I think the sole purpose of ethics is practical. Okay, how about this? 
ethics is a practical discipline. It's not metaphysics. How about this? Um, I think we might. Okay. So the Sarah purpose of obligation discourse is to get people to do things and not to do other things. If it fails to do that, there's no point the, to the discourse. You get them to do the things they should do. Not right. That, that begs the question because I'm denying that there's a, such a thing as a should do beyond a want to do. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, here, let me give you this one further example. Sure. Um, this one further thing. I'm not sure I, what you, you seem annoyed, but I'm not sure what you expected because you knew this was my view to begin with, right? I mean, yeah, I, I, I do. Um, 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 and it's not, I'm not, it's not like I'm some weird guy that woke up thinking this. I mean, there is an entire school of thought that thinks this way, right? I mean, uh, including some very serious philosophers who, who including some very serious people who are not Hitler, right? Um, <laughs> you know, David Hume is not Hitler. Um, um, and so I just, you know, I'm this, I'm not, I'm surprised that you're, you seem surprised. Um, uh, no, not, not really. Hear this out. Hear this yeah, out. go ahead. Yeah. So Sarah Stroud, may, but you know, before, just to make it absolutely clear what the disagreement is, but, and, then, and then we'll come back to this. Sure. Sarah Stroud makes this distinction that I refer to in a couple of my papers, which is between um, what she calls genuinely authoritative reasons and domain relative reasons or D reasons. Um, a moral reason is an example of, of um, a genuinely authoritative reason. For her, um, and she gives this example. But like, here's an example of a of a domain relative reason. Like, like just stipulate that there's some there's some domain events. Stipulate that there's some domain events, um, and so she gives the example of social climbing. Like, you might want to social climb. You might want to get higher up the social ladder. Um, and, uh, but she might not. She might not care. She might not care to associate with, with, with a bunch of rich snobs, right? So suppose that she's in that category. She has no, like, compelling moral reason or compelling practical reason to be a social climber. And so all of the things that she ought to do as a social climber are immaterial to her. Like she can just completely ignore them. Um, I, I like to give this example. Um, I mean, if all you're, all you're doing is sort of pointing to the distinction between hypothetical and categorical imperatives. Maybe, maybe hear this out. Take the example of, um, take the example of uh, your least favorite politician, your least favorite politician. I don't need to know who it is. Donald Trump. Okay. Donald Trump. That works great. Right. So suppose that that, that uh, there are, we define that Trump-related reasons are um, all of those all the reasons that you have that are relative to the end of promoting the career of Donald Trump. Um, now, I would agree with you there that those reasons have absolutely no normative force, right? They're they're um, for two reasons. You have no practical reason. You have no end or interest in, in promoting them, and you don't have any authoritative reason to promote that end, namely promoting his career. So, so let's say that's true. Certainly not for its own sake, you don't. Okay, so those are mere D reasons. Um, now, do you acknowledge there's a distinction between 
like completely arbitrary reasons like that, like Trump promotion reasons and like moral reasons, like you shouldn't commit genocide. You shouldn't kill people. I don't believe there are any categorical imperatives that can actually be cashed out. No. So you want to say that moral reasons are just like D reasons, but like more people buy into. I agree with Aristotle and that, that what distinguishes a moral reason from another one is simply a sub, it's subject matter not its force. Okay. I think moral reasons are distinguished by their force. Right. I don't. And I don't think, and I don't think that the notion of force you want to work with can be cashed out in any possible way in the modern framework. That's where, that's why I think ants come so important. You could cash it out in the Abrahamic tradition, right? Um, You could cash it out when you combine the Abrahamic tradition with the sort of the, the, the teleologically thick version of human nature that you get out of Aristotle. But on a modern view of human nature, on a sort of a basically stripped-down materialist biological account of human nature, um, and in the absence of uh, divine commands, uh, I think that, that, that all you've got are sort of, sort of racial memory of normativity that we illegitimately apply in a discourse that no longer has the conceptual resources to sustain it or support it. So I, I just don't, I don't think they have any force at all. I think that you just live under the illusion that they do and that you, you discover this, you discover this every time you run up against a person, right? Who, who just is not already inclined in that direction and is just utterly unmoved by your constant shoulds, oughts and musts. Right. Um, and then they just say, well, no, I, I, I shouldn't. Do you think there would be such force if God existed and there were divine commands? Yes. Why? Because because of God because God's overwhelmingly coercive power. That's why. Okay. Um, I don't know. I, what just, other, I don't know what other kind of force there could be, right? I mean, whew, boy, wow. Because uh, I my first uh, philosophy teacher referred to divine command theory as the God as mafia boss theory. That's what I think like, it is. Well, I, I agree, but you, but the fact that <laughs> I, don't, I don't see how else you get force out of something. I don't know what it even means otherwise, other other than than somebody making somebody do something, something making somebody do something. Okay, but I mean, you're, if you if you really don't understand, and I, I have met a few other philosophers who say they just don't understand what normativity means, but that's not an objection to the concept that I don't understand it. Is not an objection to it. I understand it. I don't, I don't really care to object to it. it. It has no effect on me. You can walk around thinking that your utterances have all this force. What difference does it make to me? I don't think I they don't have any. Utterances have all this force. Well, the the moral ones. The moral ones. No, I don't think my moral utterances have this force because I don't see the purpose of moral discourse as coercive. I'm a cognitivist. I think I'm I'm trying to describe a reality that's out there. Yeah, I see. I think the only purpose, I think ethics is 100% a practical discipline. I don't think it has any, any purely understanding aims. I think the, the purpose of moral discourse is to try to get people to do certain things and to get them not to do other things. That's the point of it. Um, well, I, I, otherwise, I otherwise I don't see, I, it's not science. I don't, I just, it's not, it's not, the point of it is not, I am not interested. I mean, yes, you could do ethics for the purpose of, hanging signs around people's necks such okay that's the bad one that's the good one um i just find that completely absent of any interest right i understand why i want to know things scientifically but i don't really have any 
any sense of why I would want to know those other things other than for the practical purpose of trying to get people to do some things and just, just not do others. I don't know. Curious. I mean, I'm also not the only person. It's not like I'm the only person who thinks that ethics is a practical discipline, right? I mean, I, 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 you know, I understand my view is not the majority view, but it's not, it's not some, some wild thing. I just woke up thinking, I mean, no, and you're not the only one who has this kind of um, skepticism of normativity. Um, There've been a number of other philosophers I've talked to, although I have to say, I've also talked to many um, anti-realists, including error theorists, who at least understand what I mean by this force and just think that it, by, by normative force, and then think for like independent metaphysical reasons that it doesn't exist. Um, but uh, let, let me see. I wanted to ask. So could you say what the force is, what it actually does well, consist of? Think, well, here's the thing. is I think that, that normativity is one of these concepts where – you can, there's not that, it, it's, it's close to being a primitive concept. If it's not a primitive concept, it's close to being one. So it's very difficult to spell it out non-circularly. So if, when you, th- this puts you in a bad dialectical situation when you encounter a skeptic. It's like, how would you respond to a skeptic of consciousness? You're having an argument about the philosophy of mind, and you've got some error theorist here who is who says consciousness. I have no idea what you mean. Well, this and happens then, all the time. I mean, you, Dan Dennett has built an entire career on saying that consciousness is an illusion, right? I, mean, I, mean, um, I guess, you know, I don't know. I mean, what I usually do is just ignore those people or laugh at them or something. Um, um, I don't really, um, you know, fortunately, there, fortunately, there just are no, there really are no stakes, right? And so, um, you know, if people want to believe crazy, silly things, that's fine. Um, um, good for them um you know um i i thought what i thought you were going to do was was go in a different direction um 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 and invoke invoke external world skepticism um but i wrote an entire paper explaining why i don't think moral skepticism is anything like external words. Moral skepticism, I think, is very grounded, practical. There are very substantial reasons for it. External world skepticism is almost entirely formal. Uh, it's based on enti- almost entirely formal grounds. Um, um, it's not really because people, because the fact that somebody can experience an optical illusion causes them to, to lose confidence in the, in the general reliability of their senses. It has to do with structural gaps in the logic of justification and stuff like that. Um, but there's a fuck ton of very substantial, very ordinary, commonsensical reasons to be morally skeptical. Um, and, um, you know, one of the things I'd say in that paper on moral skepticism um, is that, um, you know, they're really the only reason for believing there are any moral properties at all is because of people's performances, right? There's no other evidence of it. The problem is that the problem is is that people's performances and especially their moral performances are so often so disingenuous, self-serving, manipulative, etc. That um, I don't think one has to be you know a conspiratorial type to uh, to really not to, to to be pretty wary of it. Um, 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 so I don't see any evidence for the existence of any morality beyond people's performances, right? I mean, there's no, it's not like science. It's not like, you know, I can set up a telescope and, you know, there's, there's Jupiter over there or, you know, I can, you know, all I got is people saying things. 
telling well, people she, to do things and not to do things. Right? That's, that's, that's it. That's all there is, right? I'm not primarily interested in like um, telling other people to do things, although I will say what I think is right about that. I'm interested in making sense of my own internal um, sense that there are ways that I ought to behave. And for me, it's, it's first personal, right? Um, I really have a strong desire to do what's, what's right and to discover what's right as best I can. And including if that means making significant sacrifices, including if that means, um, you know, putting myself in a position where, my peers don't agree with me, et cetera, et cetera. I'm trying to make sense of that. You right? see, I just, it's funny. I, and I don't know, maybe this just has to do with such the wildly different backgrounds you come from. I just, I just don't think about my life that way at all. I mean, um, I do all sorts of things for people. But if you ask me why, my answer would, I wouldn't invoke morality. It'd be because I care about them, right? Um, um, uh, you know, why did I help somebody? Um, well, they needed help, and I and I cared enough about them to want to give it to them, right? Um, um, I just don't spend any time at all, um, you know, uh, wondering about my moral standing. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I care about people and certain things and certain issues, and I have feelings of sympathy and pity and and um and uh and disgust and and i just don't see really what's added part, part of my problem with the moral framework is i just don't think it adds anything substantial i think everything it adds is kind of illusory manipulative you know it's what i do it's what it's it's what i pull out when 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 I can't get people to do what I want and they won't compromise. And they won't negotiate with me. So now I, now I got out the, the moral hammer right now. Now we get the big guns out. I just don't see any point. I don't see what it adds. Otherwise the discourse, I just don't see what it adds to anything. You know, I, I, I went and I catered someone's bat mitzvah for free. Why did I do that? I did that because they're members of my community. Um, their son grew up with my daughter. I care about them and they have no money, and I want them to be happy on that day, and so I catered their bar mitzvah for free. I don't know what's added to that. What What is added when I say, oh, and I was obligated to do so? Well, you may not have been obligated. I think nothing is – well, but to say – if we take charity as an obligation, right? What, what's commonly, added is all very of moral commonly reality. Invoked, huh? What's added is all of moral reality, yeah, but right. that's this again. Talk. What actually substantially is added? I told you. But let's let me try this from a yeah, different you angle. Just to, you just seem to think that that means something to everyone, and I just don't. I don't see why you think that. It means something to many of us. But anyway, let me try this from a different angle. Um, you, are you willing to say, like, you take practical, hypothetical reasons seriously, right? Yeah, of course. Okay. You mean like um, mean, means ends reasoning? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Say a little yeah. more about it. Yeah. What do you mean? Um, no, but what, what do you want me to say? I mean, other I than that, that I believe in means end reasoning? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I mean is it seems like it's not analytic to say like Dan has a desire for 
X or to do X or for, let X be some aim. And Dan has a, a reason to do that, right? There's like a, those seem non-analytic, right? There's some further thing that's being added with the reason claim there, I think. Could you be, give me a specific, let's do a specific example of an action and a reason. Um, okay. How about um, you want to go to the movie theater tonight. Um, the only way to get to the movie theater is to take the bus at 7 p.m. Therefore, you should take the bus at 7 p.m. Right. Do you have any problem with that kind of inference? No. I don't either. I don't either. But note, you're still adding something. Um, somebody could say, well, what is all this hypothetical reasons talk? Can't we just spell out everything in terms of Dan's first-order desires that Dan wants to, therefore yes. he does? Yes, I could. If you asked me to sort of talk through that and explain that, I would say, well, I conceive of going to the mall as, as a good. Okay. Do you otherwise, think- the reason, otherwise, the reason would not, would not make my behavior intelligible, right? I mean, it's only relative to my conceiving of that end as a good that the reason is in any way illuminating or of my, of my behavior or in any way uh, renders my behavior more intelligible, right? But to, to, to think of the end as a good is simply for, for, me to, for it to matter to me, right? Yeah, but do you, want, do you want to say something like, if something matters to you, you should pursue it? No, I wouldn't say that. I would say that pursuing it is part of what's meant by something mattering to you. I would say that mattering is, a, is thick. But Matt, okay, but maybe mattering is too much. You're building too much in with that term. Maybe we just say. I don't see why. It's an ordinary language, perfectly normal word that we use all the time in precisely this way. We're in, we're in some technical discourse here, and so now maybe maybe it's a little bit, things get a little fuzzy. Like, could, could we just say, could you just substitute the term desire for mattering here? I just think that mattering is broader. I don't think it's always going to be something that can be characterized in terms of desire. In other words, I think you can get these kinds of practical schemas that operate beyond the, the, the sort of the, the, the belief desire grammar. Um, um, so I just, to me matter, you know, that something, that something is a good means that it matters to someone um, to me is the broadest sort of easiest, most natural, least stilted, least dependent upon un, un, unexplained and uncashed out concepts way of describing what it is to represent something as a good. Okay. Well, and, in the abs- and by the way, in the absence of something like an Aristotelian teleological account of nature, I don't see, I don't think there is any other way to characterize what we mean by representing something as a good. Okay. And um, I agree with Mill in that regard. Mill says pretty much as much. Um, 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 uh, and um, uh, that's part of the reason. that That's half of Anscombe's argument, you know, that once you lose the teleologically thick account of human nature, um, you lose a certain way of describing human behavior that's axiologically thick and that then supports all sorts of axiologically thick, thick judgments. I would say in a modern framework, you can't really even say, I promise to do such and such. 
what you really have to say if you're speaking strictly and not begging the question is, um, I uttered certain sounds that had a certain, uh, that have a certain conventional significance in, in common usage, yada, 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 yada. Um, um, and, um, um, I think a lot of, uh, uh, ethical talk today, um, just smuggles in a whole bunch of stuff that, that you're entitled to in a pre-modern framework, but you're not entitled to in a post-scientific revolutionary framework. McIntyre feels the same way. I mean, that's, that's, that's the whole point of after virtue, right? I mean, that in a sense, here's where I was going. I, I think you're playing a game that you I think you're, you're, you're engaged in a discourse employing concepts that, that in the modern framework, you don't, you don't, aren't, you don't get to use. Um, okay. Well, without well, begging, without begging the question. Let me, in let me bracket that. Let sure. me bracket that. Back to what I was, what I was driving sure. at. Sure. I wrote it at the beginning of my paper on air theory, which I sent you the AJP article. Um, and something that's occurred to me for a while is that um, very few people are willing to go all the way on normative skepticism. Um, I think I met one person at a conference once, but um, y- you look at Mackey. Right. He's, 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 he's okay with subjective value. It's objective value that he has a problem with. Um, you look at, you know, any number of people who are moral skeptics. Um, Richard Joyce is another example. Um, Jonas Olson, Stan Hussey. I can go down the list. Um, and they all are sort of okay with instrumental reasons. Well, I'm okay with I'm okay with instrumental okay. reasons, and I have no problem with subjective value. That's what that's what something mattering to somebody is is a subjective value, okay. right? So, okay, but here's this is the thing I find puzzling, which is it once normativity is in the door, whether it's hypothetical or not. I mean, this seems to me that, like the biggest the biggest leap here. Is, is do you let any normativity in the door? Once you admit that, yes, my ment- uh, th- there are truths about what I ought to do practically. Forget about morality, just practically. It seems like you've, you've already let normativity in the door, so why not? Well, I accept the, the idea. I accept the ideas of, I, I accept the notion of a hypothetical imperative. Um, um, so in that, in, in, to the extent to which it, it involves an ought. I certainly accept um, oughts. But if you ask me, well, can you cash out the force of that ought? I can, right? And the story I'm going to tell mm-hmm. is going to be a story about my, my personal investment in the outcome, right? That, and whatever the end is, that, that, that this is a hypothetical imperative too, right? Um, um, and so I'm going to tell a story about why I care about the end um, relative to which these means are then something that I should do. My problem, my problem with the categorical imperative is there's no way to tell that, that kind of a story. You have to come up with some other way of characterizing, of, of filling in what the normativity consists in. I can easily answer that in the case of a hypothetical imperative. I, what I'm saying is you can't answer it in the case of a categorical imperative. Can you imagine the case of somebody who is so self-loathing that they, they don't desire what's in their own best interest? Don't not even sure. Level. I guess so. I mean, I guess okay. I could imagine such a person. Okay. Whether so, such a person is actually empirically 
Really? I don't know. I have no idea, but yes. I don't know either. I can imagine I mean, reading a story about such a person, yes. Just let me run with this for a second. Yeah. So I'm thinking, suppose there's such a person who does not care about his own best interest, right? He doesn't care about it. Um, it still seems to me that you could say, but look, your interest really is to be healthy and mentally well and to have friends and all of this stuff. You could truthfully say to that person, okay. So it seems like if that's right, if that's right, there are truths about this person's own interest that are independent of his present desires, right? I only think interests are intelligible relative to a person whose interests they are. Okay, there are, they are this person's interests. It is true that it's his, his interests. Well, it's not. not no, not re- it's relative to your to your interests. Well, let's say I'm that person. Let's say I'm that person. Let's say I'm the kind of person, I'm not, but let's just say um, that I'm the kind of person who doesn't value his own future well-being. Um, it still seems to me that you could truthfully say of me that uh, you, ought to, you ought to take measures to see that you're, you're happy in the future. You ought to take measures to, to make sure that you're well in the future, whether you desire it or no. No. Okay. No, no, the way I, I would the way I would frame that. I mean, if I was talking to such a person, is and I do. I mean, I have to talk to students. Give, I, you know, I have a daughter. I mean, I'm in the advice giving business all day long. Um, 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 but one of the things that I am very sort of careful about is, is how I frame this. And I always say, if you are asking me what I would do, or given my conception of what you should be, right? But the idea that something can actually, in fact, be in their interest, independent of them, right, of their attitudes, I find, I find, I find incomprehensible. It's borderline, I would actually argue it's gibberish. I actually would argue it actually violates, it's, it's semantically, it violates okay. the meaning of the word. I'm inviting listeners to reflect on whether this really is gibberish, right? Well, not, but it doesn't have to be, you know, look, something can be, I mean, you've read nonsense poetry, right? You know what I mean. Something can be not gibberish in the sense that we understand what it means, but it actually um, violates violates a grammar, right? I mean, I mean, what I would say is that the notion that this person has no ends that matter to them presently, and that somehow, in, but that somehow independently of that, there are things that are in their interest. And that when I say that, I'm not simply projecting my own conception of what their end should be. I would say is BS, and I would say it's a very common kind of self-delusion that people who like to engage in the advice business often engage in. And I am scrupulously careful when I advise people to not do it. Um, look, this is the whole what's the matter with Kansas, right? I have no patience for that kind of talk, right? Um, like um, it just, like it just, a- it's self-important, and it's based on nothing, right, other than your own projection onto the other person of what you think they are, what you think they should be, and, and, and therefore what's in their best interest. They don't think so. It's, um, I find it really odd, and, and you're not alone in this, but I do find it really odd that sometimes this objection to um, – normativity that's not hypothetical seems to carry like moral overtones. Like it's tyrannical, it's imposing, 
it seems like those are Im- at least implicit appeals to moral norms that you think not, are not bad. my not my lexicon. I'm just calling you an asshole. Okay, not you, <laughs> but I mean, oh. you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. In other words, I don't, I don't, I don't see why I see nothing wrong with the just good old garden variety, emotional, attitudinal, sensibility related discourse. I think it's enough to do all the work. And I don't think that the moral discourse does any more work other than invoke a, faint, a, a phony kind of force that doesn't really have any basis. And the minute you push on it, it kind of falls apart, right? It ultimately is going to come down to, uh, well, are you going to actually make me do that? Go ahead. Go ahead, right? Try it. I don't right? think it comes down to that. I mean, I can... But then I it's can, just talk. I can, it's, it's not just talk, right? It's well, talk it is that, to me. It may not be to you, but it is to me. Okay. It, for me... Moral talk is an attempt to describe like a normative feature of the world that really is there and, and we really ought to care about. And you can independently, say, oh, of, independently of anybody caring about anything or anything mattering to anybody. I'm not sure what you mean by that. I think it could mean, but here's what, here's what I do mean. It could be the case that I don't care about it, but I ought to. That could be the case, right? It could be that I don't care at all about giving money to famine relief, but I ought to, because I morally ought to. And you say, well, well, I, you, you, you can say that, but I would then like to hear the story of, of about what force that has to say. I'm not sure what kind of a story you're demanding of me. Like any, any you, story I could look, I gave a perfectly straightforward story of what is meant by the hypothetical imperative. I'm just asking for something equally clear and straightforward. I don't, but I don't accept your story about the hypothetical imperative either. Here's well, my you don't have to accept it. It's my story. Okay. You don't. You don't. You don't get to decide what my reasons for doing things are. They're my reasons, right? Um, right. So I telling you what my reason is. Now you can say, well, that's not your reason, but you know, you have no. You know, it doesn't cut any ice. I mean, it is my reason whether you accept it or not. Um, um, and that with respect to what my reasons are, I do have privilege, right? Um, um, uh, epistemically, uh, as well as, uh, uh, in every other respect. So when I tell you that the reason I did this is because I represent, uh, the, the thing in effect as, as being a good, where what I mean by that is that it's something that matters to me. Um, that is actually my reason, right? Okay. And that doesn't involve anything moral at all, right? That just involves said, a normal not, sensibility, right? It's not plausible because you can imagine something being a good for someone when it doesn't matter to them, right? You might not be able to, but I think most of the people who listen to this are going to be able to say that's, that's at least conceivable. Not in the absence of some kind of a teleological account of human nature. No, I don't think so. Why? Because it has no ground. Has, I would say that the moral reality itself is the ground. Right? I, I, I would say that begs the question. I, I would say that, that does, that's, that's unresponsive. Somebody asks you what the ground of X is, you say, well, X is the ground. Um, well, some grounds are primitive. Some things, some things bottom out. Listen, there are people, planning that does this. I mean, you, you want to say that moral obligations are brute facts, go ahead. I will just tell you that has about as much force as, as the other version of it had. And... Think it if you like. I mean, I you can but you're not yourself, but it, it, it cuts no ice with me. It just doesn't mean you're it. not giving me any argument against it. You're just saying it's ridiculous. Well, I don't. I don't feel like I owe you one. I th- I think that if you're going to claim 
that there is some powerful force that is attached to certain kinds of propositions, the burden is upon you to show me what that force consists of and what grounds it. It's not my job who doesn't think there is such a thing. I mean, this is just down to the, you know, it's not my job to prove that there aren't any invisible leprechauns, right? I mean, um, 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 you're the one making the substantive positive claim. And you have, you you bear the burden of proof to demonstrate it and to and to and to explain it in some way other than simply stamping your foot and saying it's brute, right? Um, that's not that's not any kind of position. I mean, that's just that's just argument by stipulation. And again, I have no problem if you do it. I have no problem if you want to think of your of your life this way. But I was always under the impression that the point of ethical discourse again is ultimately practical. It's to get people to do th- certain things and to get them not to do other things. I don't take it as purely a descriptive enterprise as being in any way interesting. And you may, but th- that that's just the extent to which our spheres are just never going to, they're not going to overlap. I mean, you know, you're going to be over there doing this and I'm not. Um, but I do think that most people who are invested, especially in, very robust, realist, moral theories do want this to have some kind of force and efficacy, but then they're going to have to give an account of it and not just say it's brute, right? I mean, the kind of... You want to equate force with motivational force. Yeah, something that actually gets you to do something or not. Otherwise, I don't know what what it means otherwise. I have a paper under review arguing against motivational internalism. Lots of, lots of realists don't accept motivational um, internalism. The idea that if you have a reason to do X, you're motivated to do it. So it's not clear why I'm supposed to give a, if you're demanding force in that sense, many of us explicitly reject it. Look, if you, you can, again, you can do whatever you like. Um, I'm just telling you what my understanding of the point of ethical discourse is. If you think ethical discourse has some other point, that's fine. And no, but nothing's stopping you from pursuing it. But on my conception of what the point of ethical discourse is, the person who's claiming that moral judgments have some special force over and beyond um, what I would call their sort of, you know, emotional weight um, I would think that they, 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 that they're bound to then give some account of it. And I've yet to hear any account of it other than that it's brute. Right. Um, um, and now you might say, well, it's not force in that sense, but then, then, then we're now in the territory of what I'm, things I'm not interested in. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's a notion of ethics. I'm not interested in. Um, I'm not interested in ethics in the same way that I might be interested in, in metaphysics um, or in epistemology, my interest in ethics is entirely practical. Um, it has to do with human activity, with human That's action. That's right. I, I, think, I think it's practical to want to align our behavior with what we really ought to do. Um, and, I, and there has to be some kind of regress. That just seems circular to me. It well, seems like a very tight circle. Well, when I hear we, that, I imagine a guy in a little tricycle, like just going around like this. It just doesn't, it doesn't resonate with me at all. Well, if you, if you ask, like, for any kind of odd, like, you're going to ask, like, well, why should I do, why should I do that? And then some kind of reason will be given, right. and then some kind of end, and you're like, well, why should I do that? 
and some further reason will be given. And um, I don't see why, I don't see why there would be an iteration of should. It seems to me that when you ask me, well, why did you go to the mall? Uh-huh. And I tell you, well, I went to the mall because I represent going to the mall as a good. And what I mean by that is there's things in the mall that I care about or that I want to do or that, or that, you know, I enjoy or whatever. That seems to me a complete and full explanation. Now, I mean, you can act like a three-year-old and keep asking why, but that's just a game, right? I mean, I, I see nothing about that that requires further elucidation. And I would argue that most people would understand that explanation perfectly well. It would be, make perfect sense. And it would explain in a very robust way why the person did something, right? Okay. If you ask me, well, why do you care about that? I might be able to give some answer, but eventually the answers would run out. I mean... Well, the answers are going to run out with, for you with, with desire, it sounds like. And so, yeah, well, of course, but, that, but I would argue that desire is a perfectly understandable notion that has a lot of substance to it. And the notion that you're trying to sort of talk about strikes me as being rather um, elusive and uh, insubstantial. Insubstantial in the sense of, of non-physical, sure. Well, more than that, though, insubstantial in the sense that I can't really ascribe much content to it. I could speak a lot about why certain things matter to me and could talk a lot and could give a lot of information about my emotional states, about my relationships, about my history, about all of those sorts of things. But the kind of discourse you're talking about seems very bare. I don't see that there's much that can be said about it other than simply that it is. Um, and in the, in the realm of human action, I just don't find that either illuminating or. Well, like I said earlier, I, I find like, I, I find myself to be in the dialectical position of somebody who's like, who, who insists that like they're a conscious, a skeptic of consciousness itself or something like that and demanding to be argued into it. Um, and you keep saying, you know, like the way it feels like when you pinch yourself, there's like a feeling and they're like, nope, don't know what you mean by that. Nope, don't want, that's insubstantial. You're not saying anything about neurology here. And, uh, you know, well, if well, you think I'm doing that, I'm sorry, but I don't think I am. And I, you know, I'm happy to let the audience decide whether they think I've been doing that. I think I've been speaking in very specific terms, very concrete terms. I haven't invoked any concepts that I've left undefined or simply insisted were brute and said nothing further about them. Uh, all the notions that I'm using are perfectly ordinary concepts that we, that we talk about all the time in describing the things we care about, the things we want, the things that we love, the things that we hope for, the things that we uh, aspire to, um, um, all of which have a very rich foundation in human nature that we could talk a lot about. But this other realm of discourse that you're describing strikes me as very abstract, very barren, very resistant or resilient to any kind of substantive um, unpacking, um, and very tightly circular. Um, and um, and so, um, I mean, that's not a fault in the sense that, you know, uh, I, you know, some people like doing that sort of thing. But it's it, to me, ethics is, it's so not what ethics should be about because ethics ultimately is about people and what they do and how they interact and relate. And, and um, that has to be all tied up with the substantial elements of human nature and not sort of these a priori concepts. I think ethics has got to be about more than what I happen to want. What I ought to do 
uh, at least we've got to understand the possibility of those things coming apart. But this makes me think perhaps it would be useful to take a step back and return to something we talked about in our previous discussion about peer disagreement. Yeah. I, I found this, um, this is not the first time I've had this kind of conversation with, with, a, with an anti-realist. And I find it frustrating. It seems like it's frustrating on the other end too, but it might be that there's something epistemically interesting to diagnose here or at least label and think about, which is I, I find myself in, in these conversations with some anti-realists where it seems like, to me, like the most important concept, the most interesting important concept of normativity, the whole reason I'm studying ethics is I believe in this. I believe this is a real aspect of reality. And I talked to certain anti-realists who seem to, to just not understand what it is I'm even talking about. Insist they don't, um, and including people who've published papers in moral philosophy, um, you know, p- people I've cited, stuff like this. Um, and I've had a similar kind of argument with, um, with Alistair Norcross that's been going on for years and years. Um, he was uh, one of the... He's not a moral anti-realist, though, is he? Isn't he, he, isn't, he like, isn't he like a hardcore utilitarian? I mean, he's a, he's a scalar utilitarian, but this is, this is the thing. Is, so he, he defines, um, he says, yeah, there are moral truths, but he wants to ultimately say that the moral domain is just another D-reason in the sense that Sarah Stroud mentions, in the sense that you're okay with, in the sense that I want to say more reasons are more than that. Yeah. So yeah. For me, I think okay. that, that, that evacuates it of all content. And so... So we had this we had this disagreement, and I, and that first paper I, I cite you about um, normative normative pluralism. Yeah, it, that is the best that is the be- my best shot at, at refuting this. Um, I think I've done it. I'm leaving that alone. But 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 before going my arguments against it, we don't even have to talk about that. But just the disagreement itself it arose like this. Um, we were talking about Singer's uh, um, child drowning in a pond case. And I, and you know, of course, we he and I both agree. Yes, you morally ought to save the child that's drowning in the pond right in front of you if you can, and, and there's no substantial cost to you. We agree about that. Um, but then I would also say, um, oh wait, wait, what if you morally ought to save the child, but you, um, but you prudentially ought not to because there's some like monetary cost to you for saving a child. You ruin your shoes or whatever. Um, and Alistair will say, well, morally you ought to save the child. Um, and, and, and like pragmatically or prudentially, you ought not to. And I want to say yes, but like all things considered, you ought to save the child. And Alistair says, I don't know what you mean by that. Do you mean more, all things considered morally or all things considered prudentially? And I want to say, no, like I mean like, all things considered, I mean, like what you really ought to do. And he'll say, I don't know what you mean by that. And I find it really puzzling because it seems to me that if, if you don't, and, and I would say the all things considered ought is really the regress stopper here. I want to then make a further claim and identify the moral ought with the all things considered ought, but that's a whole different picture. But in any event, um, I find myself in this really interesting puzzle, like, wow, we've talked about ethics on all of these other things, and we've agreed about some things and disagreed about others, 
And, you know, I cite his work and he's on my dissertation committee. But then when it comes to like what I think is like the fundamental normative concept here, I have a very, I am sure I have a very clear conception of this. And so do many other people I've talked to, but then Alistair and then like some other people, not just him say like, no, I don't know what you mean by that. It's got to be bound to some domain that like I happen to care about. And I think, Oh my God, no, like, yeah, I tend, you know, to, I tend to agree with, I tend to agree with them. Um, yeah, um, yeah. um and, um, you know, I do think, you know, it's funny, the way you formulated this does resonate with me across a number of subject areas. So when you said this, um, when, when Alice, when Norcross says, you know, well, morally speaking, yes, you ought to, but prudentially speaking, you ought not to. And then you said, no, no, but what really ought you to? Yeah, that yeah. reminds me of that use of that kind of use of really in metaphysics, and I always think that everything that ha- that follows those reallys can never is always a mistake. Um, 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 and re- represents a kind of pre Kantian, but a, a pre pre Kantian and pre Wittgensteinian understanding of things. That 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 fails to recognize the sort of the the fundamental the fundamental framework dependence of every mode of discourse. Right? There are no skyhooks. Right? There. Are, right? I mean, and, and Bernard Williams actually states this beautifully um, in his paper, um, "The Human Prejudice." Um, which is an outstanding, an outstanding essay, as, as is everything that Williams does. He's probably, the, in my view, the best philosopher, best post-World War II moral uh, ethicist um, that we've had. And, um, huh? I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Except Derek Oh, I think Williams blows Parfit away. But anyway, <laughs> um, I, I find Parfit wildly overrated. Um, um, and far less literate and far less broadly educated than Williams. Um, um, but um, the, there, is, there is no view from nowhere. There is no um, position from above or position abstracted from. There, it's just, it's just not it's it's just not possible and and i really do think that by this point if you were going to ask me you know are, has anything really been demonstrated in philosophy i would say the fundamental framework relative nature of all discourse is one of those things um um you're you're trying to ask what carnap calls external questions and i just think that that's fundamentally mistaken um that that is a fundamentally mistaken thing to do and that we've now been around this enough time since the 17th since the 17th 18th centuries that this is something we really all should know by now um so yes i agree entirely with norcross and i don't believe that there is any uh frame that there is any frame of reference three free position from which to make the claims that you're making now, look, I mean, I do think that there is a way of articulating um, what you were trying to say to Alistair that, that doesn't have to invoke 
reject the idea of framework relativity or framework dependency. And that would be to simply say that, yes, there are these different frameworks, but the normative framework is always, the moral framework is always overriding of all the others, right? Um, um, in other words, I think that's a perfectly coherent thing to say. And it doesn't, it doesn't make, it doesn't force one to sort of depend on non-existent skyhooks, but I don't accept it. I mean, I'm, I'm in that regard, I'm very much on board with suit with Susan Wolf. I don't think moral considerations are always overriding of all others. And I think there would be an absolute, the, the world in which it was is one I wouldn't want to live in. Um, I, I would dislike intensely. Um, because it would be a world that would not include any of the many of not most of the things that are the reasons why I care about getting up in the morning um, uh, and living another day. So um, um, uh, I would hate a universe. I would hate a world where everyone acted on the principle that moral considerations are over, over always overriding all others. But there's nothing nothing wrong with the view conceptually, intellectually, um, uh, in terms of. Um, um, you know, uh, coherence-wise. But I agree with him that there are no framework-independent modes of discourse. And and by a framework, can can a framework be true or false? Uh, no. Okay. This is um, this is just straight out, flat out I, Wittgenstein. I, this is I, flat I, out I, Wittgenstein. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, Carn- and Carnap and empiricism, semantics, and ontology. Right. I think it's. I think. It's worth remarking here. I, I, when I read your article on prescription, I thought, oh boy, um, we're going to find ourselves on the other side of a very sharp divide here. Um, but maybe there's some good to, to now like assess where, we, where, where this leads us. So, and, I, and all of the people you tend to cite and think most highly of are the ones I think, oh, these are the philosophers who just don't get normativity, is my reaction. Um, so... So we're on the other side. So there are definitely people in your camp on this, for sure. And other philosophers um, I've talked to had similar conversations. So then there's this question of, okay, let's think of this as an epistemic peers sort of situation. Whereas I think there's this fundamental conceptual category that it just seems like it just, it just seems like you're – Oblivious to, uninterested in, don't understand. I don't even know what to say. Whereas you think, like, uh, like, um, no, there are these desires and things that are grounded in interest to me, and that makes sense. And then there's this weird skyhooky stuff going on, and what is that? Um, whereas I think, like, I think, like, calling something like a skyhook or just just repeating the word queerness or weird or mysterious a bunch of times is not an argument. Okay. So we're each, we're each on, apparently, different sides of, of some really deep divide where it appears to each of us that the other is begging the question or refusing to, to acknowledge the other's point. I think, I think that's a fair way to characterize where we are <clears throat> without begging the question in favor of either of us. So what should we conclude from this kind of a disagreement? What, what lessons can well, we this- learn? This sort of disagreement is what I what I was which is what I would predict, given what I think philosophy is. I mean, we talked about this last time. Um, um, this is why I don't think that there that there is any fact of the matter to which philosophical propositions correspond. It's why I don't think philosophy is that kind of activity. Um, I think that philosophical theories are 
to a far greater extent expressions of the temperament and sensibilities of the people who hold them rather than theories in the, in the matter of, of theories and science. I actually think it's a very bad idea to call what philosophers do theorizing. I think that that word should be, re, 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 should be reserved for, for scientific theories. Um, Massimo likes to use the word accounts to talk about what philosophers do, which, you know, I have no problem with. Um, but um, the, the, this disagreement between us is exactly what I would expect. Um, and I bet you if, if anybody, if we sat down together with a group of people and sort of chatted about it, um, once people got to know us, they could probably predict the disagreement on the basis of the differences between us in terms of background, temperament, um, uh uh, religion or lack thereof, um, uh, family, all sorts of things, um, um, you know, uh, generation. Um, um, you know, where we disagree is going to be at the most fundamental levels. So in terms of probably first-order uh, ethics, we probably don't disagree very much at all. Probably the things that you wouldn't do are very similar to the things I wouldn't do, um, and, um, and vice versa. Um, the things that I would do are probably very similar to things to the things you you would do. Um, the difference is the story in which we place all of that, um, and that has to do with I would say would probably be most explicable just in terms of our differences as people. Um, um, I know this is disappointing because you have a, a, almost a sacralized conception of philosophy. But I just don't. I mean, I think I think one of philosophy's greatest problems is that is that it's had a serious misconception of itself, <laughs> um, which is why you know you know if you ask me who you know in the t- who's in the top five greatest philosophers of all time, I would include the later Wittgenstein in that group because I think he was one of the ones who most clearly demonstrated. Um, just how mistaken about itself philosophy was, but I would also include people like Hume and others. Um, um, who attempted to sort of pierce through the rationalist, small r, rationalist uh, del- uh, pretensions, conceits of philosophy. And I should just want to say one thing. I do not, did not, do not mean skyhook as some sort of a term of abuse. I'm using it probably because Williams uses it. Um, um, I'm using, I was using it to try and give some sense or characterization of the person who wants to say that a certain kind of discourse is not dependent upon a series of frame of reference, right? That, that there are, that there is some, some neutral or God's eye or, or independent position from which you can cash out that, but what really exists or, but what really ought you to do, um, that only is intelligible if there is a kind of a perspectiveless perspective, but I don't think that there is, um, um, so when I say skyhooks, I don't mean that I'm not yelling queer like like Mackie is. Um, um, I don't think there's anything queer about it. I just think it's mistaken, right? Um, um, I and I think I can show why. I mean, I mean, I, I could walk you through the arguments from Kant to Quine to Wittgenstein as to why that idea of independent, topic neutral, whatever you want to call that position from which you think you're able to discern, know, and say various things. I could explain why that's mistaken. I mean, it would take a long time. We'd have to walk through a lot of the history of philosophy. But I could explain why that's mistaken. So it's not meant as a term of abuse. It's meant, I mean it substantively. Um, um, if you're right, then there are sort of proverbial skyhooks, right? 
Um, I just don't think you're right about it. Um, and I think that's really what philosophy has been doing since Kant has been trying to sort of trying to work out what, what was wrong, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that picture? Right. I almost view you as holding an almost a kind of a, a Cartesian without all the dualism and stuff. But um, you seem you strike me as almost a pre-Kantian have a pre-Kantian view of philosophy, and I just think that that is just flat-out unsustainable and has been demonstrated to be so to the extent to which anything can be demonstrated in philosophy, which, as you know, I think really can't, right? But to the extent to which we do, I think there's been a sort of an accumulation that just makes that a fucking Everest to sort of climb back to, right? I mean, that's just not not going to happen. Um, 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 and in the continental tradition, it's even worse, right? I mean, I mean, they're even more down that road. I mean, postmodernism is sort of Wittgenstein and steroids, right? I mean, um, um, but in the analytic, even the analytic tradition, I just don't think that that's sustainable anymore. And this is why I can't listen. It's not just you. This is why I can't stand these sort of, you know, Churchland and other, you know, science, science is everything. People. I got to tell you, I gotta, it's a I gotta, similar gotta. kind of thing. I mean, they just. I, uh, so this is my complaint about, about what I perceive to be just the sort, just sort of sneering dismissal of the idea that there, like, there could be like a, a moral reality that not discoverable by science and not relative to some conversational context that is stipulated. And not and religious. Not, not religious, yeah. Right. I mean, I, I'm not sneering. I don't know if you, I don't know if other people are sneering you. I'm that is my intention. Okay, not I get to it. be sneering. I take that quite seriously. I just think here's it's an, fundamentally wrong, right? Here, okay. Here's an example of, of 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 that sneering though. This is um which was uh and I, I have encountered this. I have encountered this a number of times. I mean to sneer, to sneer at Plato is stupid. You're not smarter yeah. than him, right? I mean but, so I, I I hope I'm not sneering. I mean I hope I'm not doing that. I mean, some of the language you've used and some of the language that, that came up with your conversation with Massimo that I, I listened to from 2015, it just, um, you both like mentioned the queerness, Mackey's queerness objection and like, yep, that's, that's, that's dead on. Or at least it sounded that way to me. You, you were ha- quite happy with like, yeah, a moral reality that's not based in God. That would just be weird. I do. Ex- I do think it's weird, and I do, and I accept the queerness objection to, in a, in one way, but not in another. Um, um, <clears throat> but anyway, we could we could talk more about that another time since we're already almost at two hours. But go on. What were you going to say? Yeah, I mean, I uh, I I uh, was at one of these graduate student lunches with Patricia Churchland a couple of years ago. And she was going around the table asking, like, what do you all work on? And, and they were like, the other graduate students were, were always say, using the word empirically informed in their answers. Yeah. Even though some of them I thought, you know, you're not doing x Phi, You're not in the Cox Sci program. What are you empirically informed? <laughs> and, then, and then she gets to me. She's like, and, and I said, well, something like, well, I'm the, I'm the atheist at the Pope's party, I guess. But I do, like, non-naturalist moral realism you know, very a priori intuition based. And she likes, I swear, like has this like kind of facial expression. She's like, there's no Plato's heaven because where is it? How could there be? And then moves on. And it's like, it, it's that kind of, it's, it's that kind of thing where it's like, okay, there are, there are different, there are like 
epistemic objections you could level at my position. I think, actually, I agree with you that the epistemic ones are probably some of the most troubling. Like, how do we, how do we know these kinds of facts if they are as I described them? There are some puzzles there. But very often, it seems like I just encounter this sort of, like, incredulity that there could be thoughts of the kind that I'm describing or moral reasons of the kind that I'm describing. Um, where, and it seems like I have this, I'm put at this disadvantage where I have this amazing, I have this uphill battle to like get my interlocutor to admit that this isn't just completely insane uh, before the conversations even started really. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I don't think it's insane and it can't be insane because it was for so long, the dominant view of such, fine thinkers can't be insane what i do think though is that that the western tradition philosophical tradition made some sort of fundamental decisions in the 1600s and 1700s and then again in the early 20th century that simply render that earlier view no longer available right it's not that the view is crazy it's that we no longer accept enough of the concepts that are necessary for it to, to stand up. That's why I think Anscombe's um, 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 critique is so strong, because she is not suggesting that this has never been an adequate framework, an, an adequate way of th- or a correct way of thinking. For God's sake, she is a religious theist herself, right? Um, what she's saying is that modern philosophy does not have the resources to make sense of this idea, right? Now, there are many that have disagreed with that. There now, are many other- well, sure they have. I mean, listen, there's, no, there's nothing that a lot of people haven't disagreed with. That's, that's, that's neither here nor there. I'm just telling you why I find it so strong. Um, now, it may be that in order for me really to understand your position and, and, and for you to make it fully, we would have to walk through all those fundamental modern and 20th century developments that I think and Anscombe thinks renders those concepts unavailable. And it may turn out that you'd reject a number of them. Right. I would then find your position more intelligible because I would say, ah, okay, he doesn't think we lost that idea in the scientific revolution. Oh, he doesn't think we no longer have access to that because of Quinean indeterminacy, right? In other words, I have no doubt that uh, that there is a version of your position, a, a way of stating your position that I would understand, but probably we would have to go very deep into the ar- the architecture of it, because I suspect that what's going to what's going to because you're not a retro guy, you're not simply you know reinvoking Aquinas, right? And so I'm assuming that some of these key developments in philosophy, both in the Enlightenment and then in the early 20th century, which took took a number of resources away from us that we used to have, right? I suspect that what I would find is that you, 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 you will reject at various points that we actually lost those concepts or that we don't have another way of sustaining them or upholding them or whatever. Listen, I've had this conversation with Massimo. I don't think you can ground a virtue ethics in, a, in the contemporary conception of human nature. He does. I don't think that there's enough of a thick notion of, a, of, of, of purpose in the modern biological framework. I think I would agree with you on that one. So, um, 
but all that I'm saying is that I am, the fact that, you know, in this conversation, the time we have, you, I wasn't able to get from you something that to me was substantial enough that I could even grasp onto it. Doesn't mean that I don't think there is. I just suspect that it's way deep down in the architecture that you think you have the right to use certain concepts that I don't think you do. And that's because I accept certain developments that happen in the enlightenment in the 20th century. And you probably don't. Right. And that's where the disagreement ultimately is going to wind up at least becoming explicable. Right. Um, and that's why it looks now like we're just bad, you know, banging on each other. And that's because we need to go several layers down. Um, I suspect some of it has to do with uh, our di- views of Kant, what Kant demonstrated, um, in, in the critique, not, not in the ethics. Um, I suspect it's going to have to do with disagreements over the interpretation of Quine or whether we accept um, certain uh, implications of the indeterminacy of translation. Probably a lot's going to depend upon Wittgenstein, our views of Wittgenstein, later Wittgenstein and the investigations. Um, but um, sneering, I'm not. I mean, you know, maybe I made a joke with Massimo here or there. It's also very different when you're having a conversation with somebody about something on which you both pretty much agree. Right. No, and when you're fair. talking to somebody, you know, who holds the other view. Um, but, um, um, so yeah, I mean, I, 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 I do not, I am, if I gave the impression that I don't think that your view is articulable, yeah, that's, I didn't, I shouldn't have. I just don't think it's been articulated yet. And All probably right, that's because we have to do a lot of deep, deeper digging, right? Perhaps we should move into uh, closing statements. Yeah, no, absolutely. I actually don't have anything more to add on this um, um, at this level. Um, um, but please, you know, you should say you know, whatever you want to say in closing. Okay, closing statements. So I begin by trying to articulate what moral realism means. And I noted some difficulties with the details with regard to mind independence. Yeah. Um, and we sort of skipped over that. And I then characterize <laughs> the significance of the moral realism debate, the moral realism, anti-realism debate, as having to do with the nature of normative authority, the nature yes. of why should these claims be authoritative. And the rest of our debate has been about this. So I think that there are grounds for saying that you really, all things considered, ought to do certain things and refrain from doing other things like murder, rape, um, fraud, what have you. Um, I do not think that this is defined internally to some sort of a context, but I think that there is a metaphysical ground for this that is moral reality. I tend to think that that's, those facts are going to be non-naturalistic, but I'm willing to be ecumenical about that. And so then we went on and we uh, discussed sort of the nature of this kind of apparent intractable, intractable disagreement, where, whereas uh, you, Dan, you see normativity in as much as it exists at all as being like almost analytically related to desire. I tried to push in the direction of we can conceive of at least well-being being independent of someone's desires or at least their present desires. And I was hoping to use that as a wedge to push for perhaps other kinds of desire independent norms. Um, And yeah, I think that that is pretty much where, where we ended up at anything you have to add. No, I think it's a perfectly fair characterization. Um, and, um, the only thing that would add in my half of it is that, um, I rejected that independent notion of interests and, um, um, I wasn't satisfied that 
the account of the actual nature and substance of the authority you're appealing to that's independent of any actual sanction either from God by gods or men. Um, uh, I wasn't satisfied that that had been articulated. Um, um, and I, at the end, suspect that it couldn't be articulated unless we did a much deeper dive and discovered that, as I suspect, you're going to think that certain concepts are available to you to use to, to make, to ground those things. And I'm going to say that they're, that they're not, um, um, that you don't have the right to use them. Um, and so I suspect that our disagreements ultimately are going to rest upon fundamental disagreements in metaphysics, epistemology, and the philosophy of language. I actually don't think that the, the disagreements are fundamentally at the level of ethics. Um, um, and I suspect that we would find that in other practical disciplines, we have similar disagreements, like in aesthetics or like in um, uh, uh, philosophy of action um, and other areas. I suspect we're going to find similar disagreements because they all come from a similar root that you think you have certain notions available to you that I don't think you do. Um, and I might be wrong, by the way, about that, because I'm just assuming that you accept most of the modern framework. If you don't, or if you think we don't have to, then I might actually be say, well, if that's the case, then you are correct, and I would agree with you, right? I mean, I, I mean, I could see that, right, happening. But we'd have to go to the deeper dive to get to that, to see whether that is the case or not. So, all right. Hey, man. Um, that situation there, I strength and goodwill and, and fingers crossed that everything works, turns out okay. And that you stay okay. And, and, um, I hope you're holding up psychologically. Okay. It's got to be tremendously stressful. Yeah, it's not too bad. Um, work out here. I work on a paper here. Um, you know, I can do most of the stuff I need to do as a, philosophy researcher in my own room. But the uncertainty is the, is the difficult thing. And the separation from loved ones and stuff is probably not easier either. All right, my friend, well, Spencer, thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to the next time. Thank you. All right. Take care.